0: Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 76, recorded on, ah, geez, what is it today? July 11th of 2019. Uh, This is the Photo Geekery podcast. We take all of the news stories from the weekly cycle, the geekiest ones we can find, and distill that down into a fun conversation. I'm your host, Don Kamarechka. And we have a uh, a new voice on the podcast, um, somebody that uh, I've spoken to many times uh, and I've seen videos of before, but I've never had a face-to-face conversation with. He's a fellow macro photographer, photo geek. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, Stuart Wood.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's um, really fantastic to be here. My first podcast, so you could call me a podcast virgin. But, well, um, you have uh, you've got yeah. a YouTube
0: channel. That I have a YouTube has, channel, uh, you know, but I can a...
1: edit those YouTube channels. <laughs> I can edit the videos. <laughs> but yeah, um, it's fantastic to be and finally be able to speak to you as well because I've been a fan of yours and, several and years. Before we before we
0: get uh, started into the uh, into the show itself, uh, what uh, what do you do photographically? Give us your elevator pitch in terms of uh, what inspires you in the photography
1: space. Well it all began I, I mean I photographed a jumping spot and it really got me fascinated in doing macro photography and I was just going to just you know sit at the back of the room just learn macro just get a camera and that and then my friend said to me it'd be really interesting seeing my journey of learning macro photography and he, he suggested I should document it on YouTube and that's where it basically just exploded and now I'm Because I've got the YouTube channel, I assign myself assignments now. So then I'm constantly photographing something and then that's just taken off. And I'm just so, so much into the macro world because... Assignment is an
0: interesting, uh, you know, process photographically. It right? Is. You give yourself a task. Yes. Uh, sometimes it's, uh, and I do this, of course. I mean, I'm, I'm writing a book right now, so I've got tons of assignments to uh, uh, to scratch off of my list. But even if it's just a step outside of your comfort zone once in a while, as a photographer, to try something new, uh, I, I do a lot of um, photography workshops. Uh, later today, I'm actually flying out to the Seattle area uh, and then to Anchorage for a couple of workshops. And I meet with a lot of uh, macro and close-up photographers, people that enjoy uh, photographing, you know, this this space, this genre, uh-huh. uh, all these details. Um, but, you know, especially when I sit down and we do water droplet refraction photography. Most people have not attempted yeah. it before. It's clearly outside of their comfort zone, and you don't know what you don't know. It's a complete unknown until you sit down and you start to experiment and explore it. And the same is true of, you know, if you've never done street photography, spending a day in any metropolis with your camera will be revealing, and you won't necessarily walk away with great images, but you will walk away with that, a lot of knowledge. That frequently that happens process. in
1: macro as well. You walk away with no images that you can actually use. But you always learn from your mistakes, and you just keep on going. And it's one thing I teach on my YouTube channel is that um, you know just because you've got X camera with you know this macro lens doesn't mean you're actually going to walk away with a good image. You know you just got to keep practicing and keep on at it. Sometimes you get lucky, sometimes right. you don't. And, and no matter what camera yes. you have.
0: Uh, no, no matter what gear, lens, you know, uh, accoutrements around the camera in terms of lighting and whatever else, uh, you could have the exact same setup as a master and make terrible yeah. results. Or that master could you know, come in with an entry-level camera and well, blow that, your work out of the water, especially that, when you're just starting. And it's kind of hard to uh, get over that initial discouragement.
1: Yeah, I, I had that a few times before I started the YouTube channel where I'd put an image on my Facebook page because I didn't have Instagram back then. And someone would message me going, oh, what lens are you using? Is the Canon MPE 65? And I'm like, no, it's a 50 mm extension tubes. And then they, they don't believe <laughs> you when you say that. And um, Yeah, it's yeah, like, put a kit lens on backwards yeah, can, or something. Can you show you know? me how to do it? I'm like, yeah, sure. No, why not? And I got asked that many times. that you know, I was talking to my friend, as I said, and he said, well, just get on YouTube now rather than later. Right. And, you know, when you
0: use a lens outside of its original formula, uh, you know, like putting it on backwards or putting close up filters in the front of it, um, extension tubes to a lesser degree, uh, you'll kind of push the optical formula maybe past its limits. And you might suffer a little bit than having a dedicated lens, Mm -hmm. but it'll still get you within the realm of that uh, magnification yeah. and the artistry will come from there.
1: It was great to now, get started with.
0: <laughs> it, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and that kind of leads into our first story of the, uh, of the week here um, from Petapixel uh, goodbye, aberration physicist solves 2000 year old optical problem. Now, okay. This has been talked about uh, ad nauseum in many different forms. And, uh, and I've uh, I've just refreshed the page here. There's over 200 comments on this on, uh, on Petapixel. A, a lot of people just um, having fun in the comment section because <laughs> it is such a ridiculous, if you take a look at this, and uh, the link will be in the show notes at photogeekweekly.com. The formula to calculate the lens design is, I, I mean, I'm not a mathematician. Um, so one of these small segments of formulas is impossible for me to comprehend. And they are nested and stacked and organized in such a way um, that I, if I studied it for twenty years, I wouldn't be able to figure it out. So let's not dive necessarily. No, into that. It looks
1: more like a work of <laughs> art if you put it
0: on the wall. <laughs> exactly. Um, it reminds me of like early diagrams of the internet, yeah. where it, you know that would just be like nodal uh, points, but this is every one of those points is an actual equation, um, and so. If you take a look at how this lens looks, it kind of looks like a sideways caricature of a mustache. I'm not sure really how to describe Mm. it. It's got a bunch of squiggles on the front and the back that determine the shape of a lens that will prevent aberration, meaning that uh, light will bend uh, at different points, depending on the wavelength, the different wavelengths will bend differently and simplest, uh, the the simplest lens designs will have the colors somewhat um, out of alignment uh, when they hit the film plane or the uh, image sensor and, That was uh, modified to kind of draw things back into alignment when uh, you added a second lens, a doublet design, and even further when you had the triplet design. And those were... Uh, early 1900s. I know that the, um, the trio plan 100 from Meyer optic is a triplet design and that optical formula came around in 1916. Uh, and yes, things have gotten more complicated adding extra lens elements in order to bend light back on course, um, different, uh, materials like using fluorite or different coatings on the optics, uh, to have, you know, better refraction properties and and bend the light, uh, more according to what we want to get a nice, clean, pristine image. But in those early days, I don't think it was even anybody's dream to create a lens like this, even on paper, because it wouldn't have been possible to actually design it. Um, the The curves and the lines have to be very, very precise. And the way that you have indented like concave curves that uh, hit to a point and then bounce back out and you can probably 3D print something like this now with the technology that we have today or within the next few years into a commercial product. Uh, And it is a single lens with all of these waves and curves that seems to be doing a fairly decent job. The guys that created this, you know, when they were doing their studies, they were actually kind of shocked when it actually worked uh, in their test because, you know, it's such a... I mean, you make one of these numbers wrong in this equation, and I'm sure it just breaks everything. Um, I, I've talked enough on this, Stuart. What, what is your initial <laughs> thoughts on this? Well,
1: I think and it's how easy. do you think this is going to evolve uh, our photography? Um, well, I think it's fantastic the fact they can push technology this far and get rid of um, get rid of this aberration. But is there a point where it goes too far? Yeah, I mean, can you get a lens that is too perfect? I know for a fact you've got a lens, I can't remember the name of it, but it, uh, because of its um, impurities, it gives soap bubble. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's
0: what I just mentioned, the triplet design of the yeah, Meyer Optic what, Trio Plan 100. Um, and I love the impurities, the imperfections yeah, that that exactly. lens produces.
1: Um, so, yeah, it's certain. I think it depends on what you're photographing, I'll be honest. I mean, if you want an absolutely the sharpest lens with no distortion, nothing like that, then you'd go for that. But, um, I mean, it's, it's like the vignetting on lenses. You know, we, we go and get these expensive lenses that don't have vignetting and then afterwards we had it in Lightroom room anyway just to give a more artistic <laughs> effect <laughs> but, and
0: i love using vintage lenses too yeah. i mean i've recently modified i've mentioned on the podcast before a, a leica Stemar stereo 3d full frame lens from 1954 and i love it it does something that no other modern lens can do it was a niche back then it's an even smaller niche now mm. um
1: but you know <sighs>
0: Okay, so it, it all would come down to cost and practicality for something like this, right?
1: Yes, I think it would, it would be. I mean, how much would they be, you know, if, if it comes into the mainstream for you, know, like you and me to buy, how much would it actually cost for a lens well, of
0: and, and to be fair, too, what if you want to do something a little bit... Um, off the mark. Like, let's say you want to play with a, a, a tilt shift mentality. Does this lens behave well when yes. you tilt it uh, off of the focal plane? Because it seems like it's very specifically calibrated to be straight on uh, without any, uh, you know, bending because, you know, uh, that I, I again, the physics is beyond me, but it seems like that would break if I bend uh, the, uh, the front element or the only element of a lens like this. But I was thinking, here's an idea that I had a while ago that uh, I don't know if it's technically possible, but uh, it might be an even easier approach for this instead of doing 3D printing. Uh, We've been growing crystals in labs for a long time. Uh, I mean, look at um, uh, Apple for the longest time used uh, sapphire lenses on their their cameras. Um, We've been growing, uh, you know, very high quality optical grade crystal. But what if? We could grow, uh, I mean, starting with a base of uh, fluorite or something that we know has very, very good optical uh, properties. And we dope the fluorite, uh, which is you uh, you add in impurities to the crystal um, that are still optically clear, but have a different refractive index. And if you do that in a controlled way, as the crystal is growing, you could grow. a um, a refractive index um, that mimics this same uh, physics here the same mathematics uh, at different levels within a solid block of a crystal and then afterwards shape that crystal down into a standard shaped lens so it would just be a a regular curve on either side none of this wiggly nonsense but inside that uh, that piece of uh, you know uh, I don't want to call it glass but Uh, In that in that optic, you would have the exact same physics playing out because the refractive indices inside of it would be different based on the impurities uh, that were carefully planned and placed while the crystal was growing. That might even be more difficult, but at least on the outside, it would be a simpler and more robust lens design. Um, So says my crazy mad scientist.
1: The it (laughs) is. The cheaper it should be as well, I think, shouldn't it?
0: Well, if you could, if you could pin down exactly how to uh, to manufacture an optic in in either way, uh, you know, you, you make one, it's going to cost you millions of dollars. You make the second one, it'll cost you ten dollars, kind of thing. I mean, it's just the uh, as yeah. soon as you can get that manufacturing process all lined up. And I'm exaggerating numbers on both sides. It might be, uh, you know, cost you a billion dollars versus you know a hundred for the the second one. Uh, regardless, this is fun physics. And if anybody, if anybody at all understands this math, please reach out to me and try to give me a layman's terms explanation of exactly what's going on here. But in the manufacturing world, when you see lenses that now we've got, um, uh, the, the the mirrorless designs with uh, shorter flange distances and Sigma just announced a, a bunch of lenses and a new camera we might talk about on the next episode. It was too late to include hmm. in this one. But if you design a lens uh, specifically with a large rear element closer to the sensor, you can get much better optical quality by that virtue as well. So with everybody shifting to mirrorless, uh, we have the opportunity without exotic solutions to simply get better and better quality images. And I still love putting those vintage lenses on, uh, on my camera. Stuart, do you have any vintage lenses?
1: Yeah, I've got some Pentax ones. Uh, I believe it's a 28 millimeter. I really like it for doing b-roll in my videos. Um, the only downside is it's manual focus and sometimes I'm at an angle where I can't get to the focus swing and I'd like to have the autofocus but apart from losing the autofocus I think they're fantastic Yeah, and
0: I mean for macro photography too uh, autofocus is mostly not used by me Uh, it's uh, generally physically moving the camera forward and backward to achieve uh, the focus that I might be after Um, but I've got you know even some lenses that Uh, Looking at some uh, petapixel or f-stoppers or DP review articles over the years, um, other photographers have taken lenses apart and put them back together, like reversing the front element or reversing internal elements to lenses, and it just completely mucks up uh, whatever the intended optical formula is, and it gives you really... Strange optical uh, bokeh, stretchy, swirly, whatever nonsense to create what I consider to be abstract artwork. Uh, and so, I, I, these yeah. lenses are available for thirty or forty dollars on eBay, and I have no problem uh, just heading off and spending a couple of dollars taking it apart. And if I don't, if I don't get it back together again in exactly the right way, well, then it might still even be useful. I it doesn't matter. We're just having fun with light at that point
1: i actually made um pots out of my old lenses and put cactuses in. hey there you go <laughs> yeah i had a couple of Tamron lenses i'd both had the same failure where the um the aperture wouldn't work so i would take the internals put dirt in put my cactus in there and i use my cactuses in my video sometimes when i'm testing out some lenses <laughs> so the you know the cactus is there in a, in a Tamron lens you know
0: <laughs> it, uh, that, that's so much fun I'd never I, throw
1: anything away <laughs> i've
0: uh I've, I've gotten a lens that was taken apart and put back together to remove all of the optical coatings on it as well so that it would create much more flare and glare and ghosting, which we'd normally want to get rid of. But for video purposes, uh, you know, if you want to create that effect in post, it's actually much more difficult than putting yes. a wonky lens on the camera to create that effect in camera. So, yes, perfect optics. Yeah. They might be in our future. Um, do we need them? Well, depends on if you define your work as art and exactly where that artwork will take you. So, yes, um, yeah. it's a it's a fun article, though. And I really it encourage is. everybody to take a look at this formula. It's one of those things that will make my mind go numb, just staring at for a while. Um <laughs>
1: That's probably where I got my migraine from. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: okay. So, and, and this article was originally published in the journal Applied Optics uh, under the uh, title General Formula for Biospheric Singlet Lens Design Free of Spherical Aberration. So, hooray for science. Let's go on Pretty to cool. our next story. Um, Uh, DP review is reporting that the Irix or Erix, I never know how to pronounce these things, uh, teases its first cine lens, um, a 150 millimeter T 3.0 one-to-one macro lens for Canon EF, Sony E micro four thirds and PL mounts. Now, um. This lens was originally born for still photography, uh, and the 150 millimeter macro is f2.8. I actually have one of those in my studio right here um, that has been given to me for testing purposes for my upcoming book. And one of my uh, students on a workshop that I had on this past weekend used it and fell in love with it. Um, and uh, so it's great to see that they're coming out with a cinema version there's not a whole lot of uh, macro lenses in the cinema space so it's great to finally see one of them maybe because it's difficult to do So do you know the difference between a t-stop and an f-stop
1: um let me let me see if i can get this right okay so the f-stop is the um the the measurement of light from the front of the lens that goes through your aperture but then on some lenses you can lose light as it goes through the lens hits the head sensor, whereas mm-hmm. a T-stop is the measurement of light coming out the back of the lens. That's yes.
0: right. So, <laughs> uh, so, and it's important to note that the light coming out the back of the lens will always be consistent, yes. right? So, um, and, and this applies uh, well to macro photography because... Um, uh, in the, uh, the manual for the Canon MPE 65 millimeter lens on page eight, there's a chart and I don't mean for you to dig that up right now, but this chart illustrates that when your magnification increases, your effective aperture actually gets smaller. And so when you're at uh, one-to-one magnification on a macro lens, you, in a rough sense, I mean, if we don't know the pupil distance, uh, uh, for that particular lens, it's usually not a published stat. We can just use a simple equation that for every magnification factor you have, your effective aperture goes down by one stop. So uh, when you get from infinity focus down to that one to one, you're losing light. And if you add extension tubes onto your lens to force yourself into a two to one magnification, for example, you're losing another stop. Your effective aperture goes down by one more stop. And so, you know, when I'm shooting uh, snowflakes at the most extreme magnifications, like 12 to one my aperture is set to uh, f2.8. And if I use that simple equation, uh, then I would be at around f 100 <laughs> now. Uh, it's actually not quite that far if you use a more complex equation, but it still illustrates the fact that as that magnification increases, your light is lost. Whereas um, if this lens is true to form with T-stops, it's a little bit less light overall than the f2.8, yep. which would be at infinity on a regular lens. but You have a consistent exposure all the way, which is very useful if you want to you know, pull focus from infinity all the way to something right up close to the camera. Your exposure will not shift. Uh, So for cinema purposes, that's a very important feature to have. Uh, This is a this is a unique lens. I've never actually seen a lens like the um, at least the version that I have in studio right now. It's a hybrid in the sense that it's manual focus only. But it has electrical contacts so that the camera can electronically control the aperture. Right. So you have aperture control, but manual focus. And it's a big, heavy lens. And for macro purposes, like we discussed, autofocus is less relevant, mm. but it still allows you. And uh, and this is uh, I, to, to me, it's important. And to others, I'm sure it would be, too. If you're using the lens as a still uh, still camera lens. Um, your aperture is wide open when you're looking through the viewfinder, whether it's optical or electronic, uh, and then it snaps down to the aperture that you've set when you take the picture and then snaps back open again, uh, which is the way most modern lenses work. Yeah. But if you're using a lens like um say the Venus optics Lao one hundred millimeter uh, macro lens, which can get up to a two to one magnification, and you set that aperture down to like f eleven or f sixteen, you have to look through that small aperture. And electronic viewfinders will really slow down because there's not enough yeah, light. It, Optical viewfinders will become noticeably dimmer uh, as well, and finding that exact focus point will be harder too.
1: It gets very hard. It's one of the reasons I like my twin macro flash because it has those modeling LEDs on.
0: Yeah, or uh, focusing so, so lights, like, not yeah, modeling so you per can, se. But.
1: Yeah. Um, but basically, you know, you can light up your subject, get your focus in right, because when, when you want to go extreme, you like, say, F16, and then you put that lens on extension tubes as well, all you're seeing is black. <laughs> That's yeah. it. You know, and you've got to get some sort of light in there. So, yeah, I, I want to get my hands on this lens. I really do. Now, funny you should say about the, um, the still version, they're actually sending me a, uh, one of those lenses for testing. Uh, i've got, I'm going to be taking it out in the field on some macro adventures and basically putting it through its paces um since starting the youtube channel i've I've started leaning towards the video side of stuff a lot because not only have i am i learning macro photography and showing that process i've also had to learn uh, videography as well so Yeah, I want to get my hands on this lens. And I've done done a lot of video stuff
0: on a macro scale, (laughs) uh, specifically for documentary films where they need some extreme magnification of some obscure subject or, uh, you know, it's freezing soap bubble footage or snowflakes glistening or, um, you know, I've I've had requests from uh, the, the big three, Discovery, BBC, National Geographic. And even, mm-hmm. uh, in Canada, CBC and, uh, there's a public broadcaster in Norway that, uh, requested some of my footage. So there's a lot of, uh, interesting uses for macro in cinema. Um, now problem I have with this lens and, and it's, it's not a problem with the lens at all. It's just they're doing something unique in the way that it communicates with the camera. And that's not translating well when I'm trying to mount it on my Lumix S1R with the NovoFlex ef to l adapter, which is known to have tons of problems. It was designed for the Leica SL, and it only half worked with some lenses and really didn't work at all with others, um, the lens just keeps making a clicking noise when I attach it to, uh, to that camera and the aperture doesn't behave properly. I can use it, and I've had to do this before with this stupid adapter, is uh, tape over the electrical contacts on, uh, on the adapter itself to use it as a manual lens, but then I just have to yeah. shoot wide open at that point. Yeah. Um, and uh, the workaround that I did try uh, briefly was mounting the lens on a Canon camera and then setting the aperture to, say, F8 and then pressing the depth of field preview button while simultaneously unmounting the lens and the aperture yeah. blades get locked in place and then mounting that onto the...
1: That, that, that was the classic way of doing macro when you didn't have autofocus macro extension tubes. Yeah. You yeah. Know, if, you, if you lost the communication, you put it on the camera, set it to F8, press your depth of field preview button, take the lens off, then put your tubes on, and away you go.
0: Yeah, and uh, you can still yeah. get those tubes for like yes, 5 can. to $10 on eBay. I mean, it's not a, an expensive endeavor if you want to <laughs> no, explore it, but it's no. incredibly inconvenient. So it I is. actually have a, a Sigma uh, EF to L-mount adapter on order, and um, from all accounts, that adapter is far and above better than the NovoFlex one and less expensive, yeah. and so I'll be able to do proper testing on that. But I've got a feeling so, that I'm going to want to keep this lens, and I want to send it back.
1: <laughs> so what I what, like what about the... Um, the video version, the cine lens is it's got a large throw on the focusing ring as well. Unlike most macro lenses, mm-hmm. which means you can turn, you can turn the focusing a lot more to, to really fine tune your focusing. it's on So the Canon 100 millimeter I've got now, it's very, very short. So if I'm doing video work, finding that the focusing is shifting very quickly
0: right and it's, just, and it's the not, cinema not very version pleasing has, for video yeah the, the cinema yeah. version has gears on it as well so if you want to attach yes. it to an automated follow focus system um then that's very helpful i actually got the cinema version of the uh Liowa 24 millimeter pro lens, which has those gears on it as well so that i could you know use it for some cinema projects but the focusing throw mm. on that one is quite short uh it's the exact yeah. same one as the stills version so again you'd have to have a, a fairly accurate system or dial things in very carefully as you're working
1: it's also got a d click to f stop on it as well isn't it
0: i believe so yeah, yeah. Uh, which is again it's it's tailored for video purposes yes. and so that's one of the things that you would want uh depending on what you're trying to shoot so uh good on them for you know it's it's a relatively new manufacturer they've got a couple of lenses out and they uh, they made a splash with their first i think uh two years ago or so yeah, um, about, and yeah. to have and to have them now uh jumping into <laughs> the uh the cinema space saying that it's capable of recall uh resolving 8k um uh, cameras or resolving 4k cameras then uh hooray we've got another player in the game and uh competition is good for everybody yes. in the photography space so uh, let's go. Uh, let's get our geek on a little bit again here with the next story. Uh, Stuart, this one, I, I again, I'm not going to claim to understand exactly the process involved in this. Uh, this is from BigThink.com. Scientists create a, quote, eye on reality camera that sees invisible light. Now, Let's, let's explain. It's not seeing invisible light per se. It's not seeing ultraviolet or infrared or x-rays or anything um, uh, in the distant or exotic electromagnetic spectrum. It's seeing the polarization of light. And uh, this is an, and this is a fun experiment that I don't know if you've done, but it's a really fun thing to do. And it's even a, a macro assignment you might even be able to give yourself. Whereas if you take something as simple as cheap, uh, clear plastic cutlery, uh, a spoon or a fork or anything like that, And you hold that up to your computer monitor. And in front of your eye, you put a circular polarizing filter. So, what you're doing there is every LCD display is a polarized light source. Uh, So, you've got polarized light coming from your display, passing through this clear plastic utensil. And then you can rotate your polarizing filter in opposition to the polarization of your display so that uh, everything around becomes black. If you put two polarizers uh, in opposite, uh, form to each other, they cancel out all of the light. Um, but if you put in something that mucks with the polarization of light, then you will see that come through. And so you'll see all black, but you'll see this psychedelic rainbow spoon. Now, prior to seeing this, I understood this uh, cross-polarization effect to require polarized light on both sides to isolate this. But apparently not. These guys have found a way. To in a, a camera that's, I mean, it's not much bigger than than most cinema cameras. It's kind of a rectangular box at this point. They might even be able to make it smaller, but it's far smaller than any previous technology ever used for this type of stuff. Um, and now you can see those crazy psychedelic colors just by pointing the camera at something that will produce uh, polarized light, or that you'd be able to tell um, the uh, the difference between things based on the polarization. So um let's put our thinking caps on and w- first of all what, what do you think about this in terms of uh uh w- what they've created here and what possible purposes could this ever have it's not a camera that you or i would ever own uh, at least not as a direct product but uh we will encounter them eventually
1: um i can't say i actually understand any of this all i'm saying is uh something that i would have seen trick
0: yeah, yeah something mean, that a tricorder might be able to yeah. project or figure out. I mean, it's, it's new it's, data. It's new information. It's
1: amazing the way they're pushing the technology. I'll say that. What use we have for it's, um, I don't know. I said This goes over my head, this does. Well, if you have,
0: say like, uh, I have this little uh, plastic container, that uh, just a little <clears throat> rectangle thing, that was injection molded. And if I hold that yeah. up to my computer monitor, you can see the stress marks where the injection molding was, uh, little ripple patterns and what have you. And so if you can see uh, stress patterns on something that is manufactured that really shouldn't have stress patterns on it, um, just by pointing this camera at it, regardless of where it is, it could be in situ on an aircraft or a spacecraft. And you can see yeah. where the stresses might be without having to do anything fancy or tricky. Um, you can diagnose problems before they become a problem. Um, and so you could also use that as a sort of machine vision in the manufacturing process of those things as well. Uh, one interesting idea here was in uh, self driving cars or in um, automated vehicles could be uh, automated drones or things as well where you can tell the difference between uh, natural and man made objects based on a potential uh, polarization effect that is being produced by them. So uh, this
1: could be true. Sure they said that that they, they might be able to make it small enough; it fits on a drone.
0: Yeah, well, and, oh, and so that would be <laughs> well. Wouldn't that be fun? Yeah. That uh, again, something out of Star Trek. If part of the um uh, the the maintenance of an aircraft uh, is that a drone flies around it with one of these cameras on it to see if there's any uh, stress problems on components that would mm. be revealed by this technology. So it uh, could be making for a safer world at the very least. Um, again, industrial uses only for the most part. I think the closest that we would ever come to uh, yes. encountering one of these is in a vehicle. Um, but still, really fun that this technology uh, is uh, is coming out here. So uh, this is from uh, Harvard's press release. If you check the link on PhotoGeekWeekly.com, you'll see a video that does a pretty good job at describing a this technology.
1: Vision. But at the doesn't it?
0: <laughs> yeah, but at the at the very least, um, it is fun for photographers to also explore the polarization effects, like I uh, had mentioned, just to see what you can make out of it. Um, I, I took that little plastic rectangular box that I had mentioned earlier, and I put polarizing sheets on either side of it and it fits perfectly over um, a uh, an led flashlight that i have and it basically gives me a rainbow colored light source as a as a result of that and i can use that artistically this uh polarization of light could be fun but here's another fun experiment if you're like me and you've collected a bunch of (laughs) photographic um eccentricities over the years you've got like a drawer filled with filters here's a fun little bit of physics for you you, as i mentioned if you take two polarizing filters and you put them in uh in opposition to each other it gets black right because you're uh blocking uh light in all but one polarization direction and then you're blocking light in all but the other polarization direction and so you're blocking all of the light this is where it gets uh quantumly freaky if you take a third polarizing filter and rotate it on a 45 degree angle and put it in between those two light now passes through it. That's crazy. <laughs> yes. Uh, and I, there, there is some quantum entanglement uh, or quantum physics uh, mathematics that are involved in exactly how that works. And I watched a YouTube video that put it in layman's terms and I still didn't understand it. Um, but if you want a fun parlor trick to amuse your photography friends with, you just need three polarizing filters to do it.
1: I'll have to go and buy some then. <laughs> I don't actually own any polarizing filters. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, you can just get like really cheap uh, polarizing uh, sheet uh, yeah. pieces of glass uh, on eBay that are used for science experiments uh, for like 5 or $10 a piece. You don't actually have to get uh, photography circular filters um, that, uh, that work for it. Um, all right, before we get into our next story, uh, Stuart, you mentioned your YouTube channel off the top, but where is it? Where can people find you online?
1: Best place to find me online would be my website, and that's at Stuartwood.com. That's uh, SW, not the uh, Stuart with the U. Uh, all my links are on there for social media. But if you do want to find me, just type in Stuart Wood Art, and uh, that will take you to me. You can uh, have a blast watching some of them and watch me mess up sometimes.
0: <laughs> well, and that's what I like about you, is uh, you show the mistakes. And a lot of times people show you how to make something perfect without illustrating the uh Troubles, the roadblocks, the challenges that resulted in mistakes, uh, and challenges that needed to be solved by oftentimes a creative or inventive process. And if you don't illustrate that and the the things that you tried to do that didn't necessarily work, um, then the the learning process is much more difficult because that's part of it. If it's undocumented, then people can't learn the same way that you did.
1: Yeah, it is. I mean, I've had some sometimes where I've been in the video and my trigger stopped working. And instead of video, I'll just throw them over my shoulder and go on to use something else instead to get around the problem. Problems with lighting, problems with sleeping still, and uh, just keep working on it.
0: I've, I've had, uh, you know, I've even had some issues where I was out doing a Star Trail image and my uh, wired shutter release broke. It just, uh, the cables, I guess, shorted out and it just was non-functional. And uh, what did I do? I Okay, I just taped a rock over the shutter button to keep it depressed. And, uh, and away I, I go. You know, there's always some uh, creative solutions to problems and illustrating but, those, showcasing them, I think yeah. is very valuable.
1: Most of the time it involves gaffer tape.
0: <laughs> yes, always keep a roll of gaffer's yeah. tape in your camera bag. That's going to be one of the things I list as uh, quintessential equipment in my, uh, in my new book on De- macro photography, which... By the way, I'll mention right now before the end, um, this is going to be the last podcast uh, that, are, uh, that will be published before the Kickstarter campaign ends. There's only a few days left. And so if you haven't gotten into that, uh, we are massively overfunded. I'm thrilled beyond belief. Uh, I'm going to print more copies than I ever thought at a higher quality than, uh, than I believed I'd be able to get to. So if you want a copy of it and you want to get it at much less than the retail price, which I'm probably going to aim at $75 Canadian right now. Uh, On Kickstarter, it's $48 Canadian. So uh, get in now while you can. Help the project. And if you already have one, you can always buy a second copy. There's there's an option there to upgrade your pledge to a second one. If you know somebody, a friend of yours that likes macro photography as well, you want to give it as a gift, donate it to a camera club, whatever. uh, uh, Whatever you could imagine for that. But thanks to everybody that has supported the project so far.
1: I'd like to congratulate you on that, by the way, because it's just such a fantastic feat to get where you are with that project well Stuart and you are the I've, first I've person yeah I've, hey. I've, sorry to interrupt, but I've said it before I think that's going to be uh, a macro photographer's bible I really think like photographer's bible because there's so much well, in one you. book <laughs> that's uh, and it's not just that it's 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 the artistic side of stuff as well this is how we photograph a book you know you got the artistic side like your water drop yeah. refraction photography and the one I'm really is, but it's not another the book. UV section? It, <laughs> yes,
0: that's going to be fun. I and, and I'm I'm actually uh, I've got some uh, some extra ultraviolet lights uh, that are coming to me within the next week, just so that I can take some extra demo photos of the same fluorescing flower under all yeah. different lighting conditions, different light sources with different purity levels, just so that people can illustrate or can see the illustration of uh, of what gear is required and. I wanted to thank you, Stuart, because you were the first person to order the limited edition version of the book, uh, which is leather bound and it has an extra chapter, sort of just like an encore presentation uh, of uh, whatever else is in the book. And uh, we've just hit the point of uh, orders of the limited edition so that that actually breaks even because it costs, uh, it costs a lot to produce produce that. And it was going to be subsidized by the cost of the regular edition. Um, and, uh, now it can kind of hold its own. So that's, uh, that's where we are very excited. Um, Awesome. Okay, I, I won't uh, uh, I won't belabor that too much more. And,
1: and ev- every, cop- every copy is also um, signed as well. Every
0: copy it? through the Kickstarter campaign is autographed, yeah. and that might not be the case afterwards, yes. depending on where it's purchased oh, from. Definitely
1: so. get in there before the Kickstarter finishes, because we're right. getting it um, cheaper and signed as well.
0: And the, the link to that will be in the show notes at photogeekweekly.com or also on my website at doncom.ca. Okay, uh, last story, and then our picks of the week. So this one from Petapixel, uh, which made me laugh and hold my head in my hands a little bit. Uh, Thieves may be selling your photos on Shutterstock. Okay, so um, the, the, the basic part of the story is people steal images online. And I've had my work stolen far more times than I can even count. Um, and sometimes they are made into physical products that are sold. Um, I have never yet, however, had people steal my work. To my knowledge, anyhow, and relicense it or offer it for license on a stock photo website like Shutterstock or iStock Photo. I mean, it, this is probably not um, uh, isolated just to one platform here. Although the uh, the author of this. Um, of this article. Uh, James Wheeler is using shutterstock as the example. Um, so one of his images, a beautiful landscape photograph, uh, <laughs> he uploaded to shutterstock and then in the similar images search below, his image was showing up multiple times because other photographers, I'm going to put that in air quotes because they're not really <laughs> photographers. If they're stealing, uh, your work, uh, stole his image, uploaded it and was licensing them. Now, <sighs> Stuart, have have you ever found your work to be uh, stolen or otherwise infringed upon?
1: Uh not as yet. Um No. I can't say I have, to be honest with you. Well let let's say
0: yeah, Maybe you just haven't looked hard enough because a lot of photographers have their work stolen and they just don't know about it yet. Um, there there, there is
1: that point. Uh, I mean, I don't actively go out looking for my images. I'll be honest. Um, I just put them online. There, there's a service that I use and, um, and, and
0: I've, I've, I've made it a pick of the week before uh, called infringement.report. That's the URL. Report is the TLD of the, the website. So infringement.report. And uh, they're a, a paid for service. I think it's $25 a month. And I can upload 300 of my images. So my uh, most acclaimed or the stuff that's gotten the most fanfare or the most iconic. um, And they will automatically search every day across every possible vector of reverse image search on the Internet and compile it into a list for you that you can search by day uh, and see where your images show up online. If you find one actionable infringement uh, from that service a year, it immediately pays for itself. Uh, and the good thing about that service is they don't have a right of first refusal. They don't want to pursue the claims themselves. They don't have a legal team that's going to start working on this stuff. You, you hire your own lawyer. Um, and I can recommend some great people to do that. But if you have a one-to-one relationship with a lawyer, you'll get much, much better results than using, um, a service like, uh, image rights international, which I still use for foreign claims. If I get, An infringement in a non-English speaking country, it's far easier to use them. But uh, if they just don't get a response from somebody, they're less likely to even follow up with it. So, uh,
1: So, I mean, what what I'm noticing on on this as well is it's just a straight up re-upload of the photography oh it's it's like not modified or flipped or anything they haven't bothered cropping it flipping it or changing the sky out or anything like that and um and and this puts people
0: (laughs) this puts people between a rock and a hard place because if you license the image legitimately from shutterstock but the upload was illegitimate if it was a stolen image i'm not a lawyer but I think this puts you in the same uh, ballpark as being sort of in possession of stolen property. If, um, if somebody uh, rolls up to me uh, with a uh, very expensive, um, large uh, TV in the back of their truck with cables hanging out of it, and no box and says, hey, do you want to buy this for $100 really quickly? And I pay the man $100 for that just because I paid for it. Doesn't mean I'm not in possession of stolen property because that's probably yeah. a stolen television. I think
1: there. I think there was a case of that a couple of years ago where someone had his camera stolen. It was sold on eBay, and he managed to track it down through the serial number.
0: Yeah, and there's actually a service. Yeah. I forget the name of it off the top of my head. I, I'm but, trying to think of it now. I can't think. <laughs> um, but it, it, it's important to note that the serial number of your camera is usually recorded in the EXIF data, um, yes. and uh, unless it's stripped <laughs> out by uh, by a service, uh, I know. That uh, Flickr, for example, will strip the metadata out of the images. It'll display the majority of the useful information, but I think the serial number information might be lost in that particular case. Um, but if that information is uh, is maintained, then you'd be able to uh, to see where that ends up. Or heck, if you legitimately sell your camera and you want to see who buys it and what they're doing with your uh, with your old camera, their new camera, then I'm sure you could track that down too and uh, and stalk the new owner. But um, yeah. this, this is interesting for Shutterstock because they clearly have an algorithm that will showcase the identical images. And
1: so. Th- yes. Yeah, so I was just about to say, if they've, if they've got an algorithm that shows the identical images, why can't they identify the same image being uploaded? Yeah.
0: Or, and, and red flag it to now, say, okay, it, well, yeah, I, I'm not going to say if that. If we
1: talk YouTube, if we talk YouTube, right? if I upload the same video to YouTube, it flags it to say it's, uh, it's the same content. Yeah. Uh, and, and YouTube has there's its also copyright a tab infringement can go algorithms to, and well, yes. uh, as well. There's a there's a tab you can go on to where it, it searches all of YouTube to find uh, identical videos that have been uploaded. I mean, surely Shutterstock would have the same type of um, algorithm on there. Well, and
0: they've so. got at least the algorithm that showcases it, but how they're utilizing mm-hmm. it is just to help people find the image that they're looking for. And I think that they yeah. really have to do a public service here to remove the, uh, the images that are illegitimate. Well, it's bad press but, for but a But how do they know who the original photographer is at that point? <laughs> I was point?
1: just about to say, I mean, what happens if, um, you know, the, the photographer uploads it to a different website and someone still is on there, uploads it to Shutterstock first? Yeah, and then the real photographer comes no in photographer after the fact as a second. It. And
0: then Shutterstock says, no, no, this isn't your yeah. image. Somebody else already uploaded this, but it was legitimately yours. Then they would have to put all of the images uh, in that uh, category. Uh, I don't know, a uh, flagged as contested copyright. And then whoever the original copyright owner is would have to upload an original unedited raw file, uh, or
1: an out of camera JPEG or something. That's, that's the thing you said the original owner. Well, assuming original that they owner shot RAW. raw file, right. If they're shooting in raw, <laughs> right. if they're shooting in raw. Yeah. Um, I mean, i shoot war plus JPEG. So I have both of them to play with, uh, just makes it easier when editing. Cause I don't have to re-edit the JPEGs out, but, you know, if anyone says to me, is this your image? Yeah, I'm or, or an out-of-camera JPEG
0: that hasn't been yeah, edited in any way will contain maker notes information that would typically yeah. be stripped out uh, when you edit it. And so that could be a marker that it is an unedited original JPEG straight from camera, uh, which the original owner would have to have. Now, that's getting into the weeds about identifying the original owner. And Shutterstock is in the business of licensing photographs. They're not in the business of uh, of curating the uh, the collection to be one hundred percent accurate. Um, yes, those two are kind of the same thing, but at the same time, how much money would it cost them in order to go through an extra level of verification, and then that. That's just going to either raise the cost of all the images available on the platform uh, or they're going to have to make that money back somehow, uh, maybe a lesser share of the uh, of the profits to the photographers. In either case, it makes the service less valuable. So maybe they just turn a blind eye to it because there's no free or cheap solution. Um, I don't know. But uh, at the very least they would have to respond to uh, DMCA takedown requests. So if the photographer decides but, to issue such requests against other people, then uh-huh. they would, and again, I'm not a lawyer here, but you, you take the onus on yourself. If you're falsely making those claims, then you are in really big trouble legally uh, if, if you are not the original copyright owner. And so that kind of puts yeah. the onus not on Shutterstock, but on the photographers themselves. Um, so yeah, in any case, some action I think needs to be taken there.
1: Definitely. Um, they. I think they need to respond to because it, obviously it's bad press as well.
0: <laughs> Have you ever uploaded images to uh, a micro stock or any stock photo agency?
1: I, I tried um, I tried short stock when I first Uh, got a camera but um how can i say it um i wasn't that good
0: (laughs) (laughs) well i I think that
1: Uh, they kept getting flagged for too much noise and stuff like that and i haven't really looked into it since then Um,
0: i i don't recommend people look into it to be honest i mean the amount of money that you could make licensing your work on those platforms is peanuts compared to um when somebody really likes one of my images and comes to me uh via email or phone call or what have you and and says, we'd love to license this image uh, for a, a a book cover or even for a scientific paper or to, uh, you know, to, to put on a product of some kind or to use in advertising. I say, absolutely. Uh, I'm more than happy to license that to you, depending on the image. Some I don't license, but... Um, I then uh, reference uh, Getty Images has a rights managed um, uh, stock photo calculator. And I pull that up and I plug in the industry, what they're using it for, you know, the number of copies they're printing, if that's uh, a marker or the, the uh, amount of audience that will be seeing it, um, and it'll spit out a value. Uh, and Getty Images is still relatively an industry standard in terms of a, a pricing model. And so I'll use that as a starting point. And depending on what the person wants, I'll often, uh, you know, I try not to discount my uh, my value. But if uh, if they wanted to use it for a year, I'll you know give them a, a perpetual license uh, for that same value or whatever it is just to increase the value for them. Um, and a lot of people license my work that way. And I get paid a heck of a lot more using that pricing calculator to figure out how much my work is actually worth. Than the couple of dollars I would have gotten if somebody licensed the image for a very similar purpose through Shutterstock or a similar platform.
1: I suppose you you, you could compare that to um, on-demand printing with your website compared to yeah, printing well, yourself. and I love
0: printing myself. Yeah, I've you, got a f-
1: you get like <clears throat> you get a couple of dollars per print compared to I me. Mean, I don't know how much you would do it. If you're printing you printing yourself. Here's I've the value of printing yourself, yourself too. But, you know, whenever whenever I sell something, it's. Literally just $3. And, and that's, I mean, okay. that's almost nothing. Third I mean, print. that's
0: maybe a cup of coffee for you, but I've got a big art yeah. show coming up uh, in under a month. And I'm doing some printing and prep work for that, uh, printing stuff on large canvases. That if I had printed on spec for this art show through a third party, it would cost me a fortune. Um, but because my cost is basically material yes. cost and uh, and equipment wear down, uh, et cetera. The cost per production is very, very low, and I'm more than happy to say, you know, I built it myself. You know, stretched the canvas around the frame and signed it personally. If if you use um, Smug Mug or somebody else to uh, to sell prints, uh, that's great. I, I'm sure they make great prints, but you're not going to be able to physically sign that before it's delivered to the person uh, that's purchased your work. So no. there's a difference no. there too. Uh, taking control of your work, I think, is valuable.
1: I, I have been. Um... Yeah, I've been asked about doing prints and I've said if I'm going to do prints like that, I've got to do it properly. I want to be able to sign the print and have it as like, say, I actually wouldn't even of, do that.
0: Uh, uh, in some cases, you might like want that. to make a, a limited print. I have no, <laughs> <Make a special. laughs> no issue with numbering them. Yeah. All of my prints that go out are numbered. So if you get print number one, you get print number one, the first print that I've made. Uh, if you get print number 10,000, well, that's the one you get. I've never had a print sell that many copies. Uh, but if I, if I ever wanted to make something limited and I did one, uh, so there's a a big, uh, lightning photograph on the wall, uh, behind me. I made that, uh, 10 copies only, And that was actually at the request of, uh, of the city of Barry where I live. Um, where they bought a copy, but they they wanted it to be not really exclusive, but uh, they didn't want to have that exact same image show up in every coffee shop and doctor's office. Uh, They wanted it to be something a little bit more special uh, for their dollars, and I obliged. And uh, you know what? I've sold nine copies. If anybody wants to buy one, there's still one available. Uh, And I don't feel like I've been limited (laughs) because I took that image, what, five years ago? Um, So, okay. But, uh, you know, suffice to say, I'm not a fan of stock or microstock agencies. There is one that I upload my work to called Science Source. Uh, they charge higher rates and uh, you know they they give me a not a big check once in a while, but it's bigger than the pennies that I'd get from somebody like Shutterstock. And yeah, it has to be more appropriate yeah. work for that platform. I've <clears throat> uploaded a bunch of snowflakes, for example, that might have scientific value that could end up in a textbook. I think Bing actually, uh, the Microsoft search engine, licensed one of my snowflakes to have as its uh, background photo uh, for a day a year ago. And uh, yeah, it wasn't a huge amount that I got paid for it, but it was a lot more than what Shutterstock would have given me for the same purpose.
1: Uh, apart from the, uh, the top things that you get from Shutterstock and other stock sites, I should say, one of the things that put me off is they kept saying you've got to keep to the trend. So you have to do your research, you have to know... You know what's in demand at the current time and go out and photograph all those in a high quality and upload mm-hmm. them all. And I'm like, I just want to, I just want to, photograph yeah, custom.
0: you know, and you know, and,
1: uh, <laughs> and I was like, I, just, I don't want to, I don't want to photograph that, I want to photograph this. And I just like, yeah, you know, it just wasn't for me.
0: Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. All right, let's, uh, let's get into yeah. our picks of the week. Uh, Stuart, I don't know if you've got a pick ready.
1: I have, it's a bit controversial.
0: <laughs> oh, okay. Well, then, uh, I'm very curious now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. So, um, since doing the YouTube, which we've spoken about, a lot of people come to me and they go, What do I need to get started in macro photography? Now, a couple of episodes ago, you mentioned the Kenko extension tubes, which is the number one mm-hmm. thing I always say extension tubes. But I've come across, uh, well, not come across, but I've been experimenting with clip on macro lenses for your mobile phone. And
0: Oh, you know what? I had somebody in uh, in my workshop on this yeah. past weekend that had a really good uh, clip-on lens. I forget the name of it off the top of my head. It might be the one that you're recommending. Uh, um, <laughs> but uh, the work that he was producing with that was phenomenal for it's, a smartphone. Well, this
1: this is this is what I was thinking. I mean, a couple of years ago, I had clip-on lenses on my iPhone. It's it's a fun gimmick thing about know, take the kids out, they can photograph stuff. But now, with the technology that's in the mobile phones and these clip-on lenses, you can actually produce fairly good images from them and although you know you're not talking um print quality images from them but if you're talking from a point of view of someone who's say seen yours or my work they don't have a disless alarm they're like i wouldn't mind having a go at that a clip on macro uh, lens for your mobile phone that costs 10 pound uh, in my eyes it's something that's fantastic and Sometimes when I go out, I said this in the video because I did a review on one of these lenses in the last video I did. Um, Sometimes when I go out, the kids want to go out to the park and I don't want to carry that big bag with the big macro lens and the tripod and everything else that you take with it. So I can just pop this little clip into my back pocket and I've got a macro camera in my back pocket. And I think it's a fantastic um, technology wise the way that it's going, that you can just take your phone out Take a picture of a bee, and it's good enough quality. It goes on Instagram.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, again, for for a lot of the stuff that you're going to be taking with your smartphone, regardless of uh, of if it's Instagram worthy or not, it's probably yeah. not going to be something that you're planning on making a sixty by forty inch print no, of, right? So, definitely. if if the optical quality isn't quite up to snuff compared to a digital SLR, but the convenience factor is there, yes, then it's the, the thing. Then you have that macro lens with you, uh, sort of at all times, right?
1: Yeah, I've I've used it on occasions where I've gone out without my camera. The kids have found something. I don't know what it is. And I'm like, well, in that case, clip it on, take a picture. And there's uh, groups on Facebook you can join entomology groups where you can upload your picture, and they will ID the bug for you. And it's just convenient to have this in, in your back pocket. Now, the lens that I used was from a company called Apexel India, and it was a 12 times lens. I'm doing that with my fingers in the air because as far as I'm concerned, it wasn't 12 times. But there are other lenses out there, like I believe it's the Moment Macro lens. It costs about $100. But then you could, if, if you pair that with the new On One Plus 7 Pro phone that does 48 megapixels, yeah, you can crop out the distortion that you get from these lenses and you're getting a really good, um, good image for you know, something that fits in your pocket.
0: Yeah. And, it, and it's, so it's, un- it's
1: unbelievable. We'll, <laughs> it we'll really put a link is. to that
0: in, uh, in the show notes. Uh, but I, yes. I, I think it is a, a more viable technique today. Uh, than it was five years ago because the optics Definitely. aren't just really cheap. Uh, you know, 25 cents goes into it and they charge you $10 for it and yeah. uh, and then you kind of get what you pay for at that point. They've gotten I, quite a bit better.
1: I've lost count every time someone's emailed me said, oh, I bought this macro lens. It cost me 800 pounds, but I didn't really get on with it because they wanted to have a go at macro. And for this, you know, you want to have a go at macro. 10 pound, Clip it onto your phone. Go and have a go. And if you like the macro, and you sit there, you're thinking, "I want better quality." You can then upgrade to a law and dedicated macro lens.
0: Yeah, that's a great yeah. pick. Uh, at least something to consider if you haven't, uh, uh, you know, explored this wonderful area of photographer, mm. the the universe at our feet, as I like to call it.
1: And and coming back to the first article that we spoke about, where you got the perfect um, lens compared to your older vintage lenses, um, some of these i say budget okay <laughs> budget lenses that you clip onto your phones they have massive distortion but sometimes that can add to the image in an artistic way like i took a picture of a, a leaf that was mm-hmm. backlit and all the distortion it just it draws your eye into the center of the frame and it looked really nice and that one i uploaded to my instagram uh, uncropped because i liked awesome. it so much you know so it's it's all down to the artistic uh impression or you know
0: The, uh, the, the, the artistic eye, and if you have the eye for seeing something (laughs) interesting, but you don't have the equipment to execute it, then the equipment might be, uh, you know, holding you back. And that's not often the case with photography. Oftentimes if you take a bad photo, that's on you, uh, but,
1: yes, definitely. No, I've and I've took uh, quite a few bad photos in but, my But uh,
0: magnification is one thing yeah. that not all cameras or lenses are capable of, and they can be modified for it. Uh, yes. Now, my pick is uh, something that is uh, maybe a little bit more expensive than yours, but not a terrible expense. Um, something that, uh, I, I mean, full disclosure, I didn't actually buy it. It was given to me um, by uh, Platypod as a speaker at the New England Camera Club Convention, the NECCC, uh, when I was a speaker there last year. And um, I do a lot of tabletop macro work, especially my ultraviolet fluorescence work where I've got uh, multiple flashes all at point blank range, right almost on top of a subject. Um, But if I put those flashes on a a tabletop tripod like a Manfrotto Pixie or something of that nature um, and I angle it down to get a proper angle on the subject. Most of the time they'll topple over unless I'm on a very specific angle uh, with a tripod leg supporting the weight of the flash. Uh, and at that point, you know, you, you breathe on it the wrong way and it'll still fall over. Um, but the, uh, the platypod, I mean, you can use this thing for so many different things. You can use it as a uh, very small, uh, portable. It, it's a flat piece of metal uh, with a bunch of screw holes in it um, that you can uh, put in tripod mounts or little legs to, uh, to lift it up on different angles. I lift it up onto an angle and if I put this uh, uh, on the bottom of a flash, then it is so sturdy and uh, the front heavy flash will never topple over and I can just adjust the, um, the height of that little screw to, uh, you know, adjust the angle that the flash is going to be. Most flashes uh, won't be able to angle down. They're kind of on a a 90 degree angle. So if you do want to have that top down effect or tabletop, um, this is a fun little thing to have. And when you're in the field and you just don't want to carry a tripod with you, but you feel like you might need one for something really low down to the ground, uh, as macro photographers want to do, uh, this can be (laughs) a, uh, a fun, useful little tool to have in your camera bag.
1: I, I could have done with this last night. I could have. I was photographing a butterfly. It was a golden era, so the sun was going down. It's on um, a one-inch piece of grass. I could not get my camera down to exactly where I wanted it to with the tripod set up the way it was. I had to, to fold the legs in and then try and use it like a monopod and then twist the ball head in such a way that the tripod's lying on the ground flat and then the camera's at the end of it. So... This could be very very handy for macro. And you can put just an. We want to get down yeah, that. Yeah, you know? I mean, like
0: my travel tripod, uh, which is a uh, Manfrotto B Free tripod, um, has a fairly small, not the most robust, but it's lightweight ball head on the top of it. Um, I can take that ball head off of that travel tripod and put it on this thing. So now I have the yes. absolute lowest possible to the ground solution uh, to uh, to get the camera stable and uh, and to get the shot that otherwise you might not be able to get. And so that's.
1: Uh, I, bet, I bet vloggers would be using this as well because it's not going to fall exactly. over.
0: So uh, they've got two two varieties: the ultra and the max. The max is just bigger and it comes with uh, more little doodads and places to screw things in and uh, and and what have you. But uh, I've got the ultra, and uh, you know maybe I'll get uh, the max as well. I think uh, I I might might find some uses for that. Uh, but it's uh, fifty nine dollars US, and uh, the max is uh, ninety nine dollars US. So. Uh, fun little tool. And uh, just, you know, if you see the table that's on the front of uh, my studio, it's just covered in little eccentricities like this, where if I need to solve a problem, I go and I grab something like a platypod, which is a solution to that problem that I can just kind of execute right away and uh, keep on being creative. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um now this is uh, this is the end of the podcast. So thank you so much for being here, Stuart. It was your first time on any podcast, I think. So glad to uh,
1: yeah. To- yeah it's my very 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 first podcast.
0: <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm I'm sure I didn't haze you too much here, but uh, you have been uh, uh, you have been welcomed into the podcasting world uh hopefully we'll have you on a future episode keep on doing your thing with macro photography i love seeing what you create uh... and you also have a facebook group too right called the macro world
1: yes yes i'll give a shout out to the groups called the macro world and uh, it's basically a group on facebook where you can come in you can share your work and you can learn macro photography but at the same time, it's a safe place. So it's not like some of the groups where you can get torn apart by someone. And while I'm on that subject, I would like to give a shout out to the admins of that group because they are the bread and butter. They're the ones that are behind the scenes making that group safe for uh, a professional like Dom to come in because everyone panicked when you <laughs> joined that group. <laughs> but for, um, I know that we've got some people that are very new to, uh, to macro photography and they've been welcomed into the group with open arms and everyone's just looking. Awesome. The group. So uh, yeah, I would like to really thank the admin team because they are my backbone in that We group.
0: will specifically put a link to that group in the show notes as well at photogeekweekly.com. Uh, Stuart, thanks again. Thanks again to everybody listening. Thank you for having and, me. And uh, I guess now it's time to get out and shoot.